We've been looking at uh, the letters of the Apostle Paul, the epistles of Paul, 13 in total, and uh, we've been kind of going through them one by one. This morning, uh, we've landed on the uh, uh, letter to the Philippians, and it's kind of like a farmer background of moving into a field with a big swather and seeing all this grain to cut and kind of wondering where to start and uh, where do you tackle this big field. Uh, there is so much. I noticed uh, that we have our fair share of teachers uh, among us. We have elementary teachers and uh, junior high teachers and uh, probably high school, but I think they would be exempt from this, he said wistfully. They probably don't have discipline problems in their classrooms. Uh, but teachers, you know, have quite a job. They have to teach and they have to maintain discipline uh, at the same time. So they have to wear different faces. And teachers, as you know, have the ability to virtually change their personality in a split second. Most teachers are rather jovial, crack a few jokes in, uh, in class. They're light-hearted until the nonsense begins. And then they change. And the face suddenly darkens into a frown, a look that is enough to stop you in your tracks. It's a look that says, you better not mess with me, because I will win and you will lose. <laughs> oh, that's the teacher. But you know, Paul was a teacher. And he has different faces too. He puts on his mad face in the letter to the Galatians. He's quite strong as he confronts the Judaizers in the churches of Galatia, saying, hey, don't mess with me. But in the epistle to the Romans, he has another face. And there he is, Paul the scholar and the the systematic theologian, he is uh, logical, he is rational, uh, he makes good points. And in 1 Corinthians, he is the troubleshooter. And he is unrelenting in, his, in his, uh, his quest to address the issues that are in the church. In 1 and 2 Timothy, he is a very fatherly Paul. He's a mentor, giving wise counsel to younger men in ministry. And in Philippians... He has a different face. He is an optimist, as he writes to the Philippians. Paul is upbeat. He's joyful. He is a positive. He is encouraging in the book of Philippians. So it's the letter we all like to read. I love Philippians. Everybody says, that's my favorite book. This is our kind of favorite letter. So things must have been really good at that period in, in Paul's life. Say what? Paul is not writing from a penthouse. He's writing from a prison cell. So things were not all that great on Paul's end of the pen. He's in Rome. He's waiting for his trial and very uncertain about his future. He may be facing execution soon. He doesn't know. He's certainly not free. He's not able to go about his regular ministry. He's under guard in Rome. And yet this, this book is filled with the positive. It's filled with joy. This is a great book. Love this book. We could title it, Whatever Happened to Joy? Joy is the theme of uh, Philippians. And we've caught it this morning in our singing. Such an encouragement to read it and to try to take some of its truth and infuse it into our hearts and to our lives. Well, what do we know about the city of Philippi? 
Well, very briefly, it was named after Philip II of Macedon. Do you know your history? Do you know who he is? He's the father of Alexander the Great. And Philippi and surrounding area was famous for its gold mines, which, by the way, the Greeks depleted before the Romans took over the town so Alexander the Great could finance his war machine. Philippi was made a Roman colony where retired army veterans were given a grant of land as a reward for their years of service and they shipped them off to Philippi. It's like you're done, off to Palm Springs and here's some land and just retire. It was located on the famous Ignatian Way, the uh, main road that connected Rome in the west uh, to the Middle East. It was a super highway all the way from Rome to Europe and, and Asia, paved all the way. Well, not quite like our city roads. Uh, they didn't have the potholes. Uh, but not a very wide road either. And it went right through Philippi. It was a Roman garrison station. Of course, it was a great road for the Roman army to march their troops. And Philippi is in Europe. This is the first European church that was established. Uh, Philippi was actually in Europe, but, but not that far away from Greece. Uh, so you can read the history of, of the church getting started in Philippi by turning over to uh, Acts chapter 16, and you've got the whole account of the story of, of what happened in the early church. There's a possibility that this was Dr. Luke's hometown. I haven't done a lot of homework on that, but I, a bit of a guess that this might have been his hometown. Paul is on his second missionary journey with Silas. Uh, we have to assume that Luke was also there, as he's the writer of the book of Acts. And the Bible says that uh, Paul came to uh, Asia Minor and the Spirit of God said, no, can't go, can't go any further. Instead of the Great Commission, there is the Great Prohibition. Paul could have established a church there, he could have strengthened disciples there, but the Spirit said no. In Acts chapter 16, verse 7, Paul decides he wants to go to Bithynia. The Spirit of God gives him the Great Prohibition once again and says, no, you can't go. And finally, Paul winds up in Troas. I mean, how do you handle Troas when you wanted Asia Minor or Bithynia? Uh, Troas is that little place on the other side of the road, you know, uh, is that place that doesn't even have a drugstore. You're out in the boondocks somewhere, a little old whistle stop on the road to nowhere. And nobody's going to know you there if you land up in Troas. Well, Paul was in Troas. But if you're going to get to Philippi and hear the Macedonian man say, come over and help us, we usually have to spend some time at Troas. You have to go to the backside of the desert to hear God speak from a burning bush. You have to be called away from a booming revival in Samaria to go to the Gaza Strip where there's only one black man who wants to start a church when he gets back to Ethiopia. Some of us want Philippi. But we don't want to spend any time in Troas. The greatest challenge that we face in God opening one door after another is that sometimes he says, no, you, you're not to go that direction, but this is the, the door that I'm opening for you. And I want you to be obedient and not go there, but go over here. And sometimes it's very specific as God leads us. Well, he got to Philippi. Philippi was unlike any of the places that Paul had been up to this point. 
because there was no synagogue in Philippi. The strategy that Paul had was always to go to the synagogue when he arrived in a town or in a city. So he had to adopt a new strategy here in Philippi. There was, however, the presence of people who were known as God-fearers, those who were not Jewish, but who had embraced the one true God. And they would meet at a specific place to pray, usually down by the river. So on the Sabbath, Paul went down to the river, and there he met a woman by the name of Lydia, a merchant of fine textiles. And she was evidently a woman of influence and of great wealth. And Paul simply told her a little bit of what had been happening in his life. And he told her the story of Jesus. And she came to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And she invited Paul and his companions to stay at her home. It was hospitality. While they were in town in, in Philippi, a slave girl began to follow them around, saying things like, You're servants of the true God. You're servants of the true God. You're servants of the true God. And after a while, she got to be rather annoying. They eventually found out that this young girl had a demonic spirit that allowed her to predict the future. Her owners used that to great financial advantage. And Paul eventually saw the plight of this young girl and the bondage that she was under, and he healed her. The demon was cast out of her life. Well, you can imagine, if that's your source of income, that Paul's actions would not make you very happy. And so the owners of this slave girl started a riot. And Paul and Silas and Luke and everybody else were beaten, thrown into prison. And that night there was an earthquake while they were in prison. And it allowed for this encounter with the jailer. And the jailer was about to commit suicide when Paul stopped him and said, No, we're all here. Don't worry. Don't take your life. And uh, the remarkable, amazing story is that this jailer comes to know Jesus Christ. And he and his whole family are baptized. What a story. The next day, Paul leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. So as you look back, not all that great an experience in Philippi, yet this is a letter of joy. And we probably wouldn't have been very fond of our vacation in Philippi if somebody beat us up and threw us into prison. But not so. Paul looks back and he has a wonderful sense of joy for what God did in the church in Philippi and in the city of Philippi. There are only four chapters in Philippians. Very brief. Oh, if only preachers would be that brief. It would be a great world. But it's not a perfect world, is it? <laughs> the recurring theme running throughout the letter is that of joy and rejoicing. Repeatedly, Paul uses words like rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in your difficulties. So this is a letter that guides us through life and instructs us on in how to live victoriously and joyously in the midst of, uh, of the normal challenges of life. And some of those challenges at times can be very, very tough. Can I move you to four quick thoughts? One from each chapter that underscores this theme. Chapter 1, joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. Joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. 
Of course, the key verse here in, in uh, chapter 1 is verse 21. And we know it, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. As we said, uh, Paul's in prison. It appears that he's very reflective. Uh, it's true he might only have a very short time and, and then his head will roll. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's okay with that. He, he simply wants his life to count and to be honoring to Christ, whether he lives or whether he dies. And it's not like, oh, well, whatever. I'd, I'd just as soon get off of this planet and just be finished with it. No, it's not that at all. He's happy to stay. He would like to stay. And he would like to carry on his ministry. He's on the edge of his seat. It's okay what, whatever happens. It's not whatever. It's whatever, Lord, you want. I'm with you. I'm there. I'm your servant. If you glance back at chapter 12 for just a moment, you see why whatever works for him. It says, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. You know what's happening? Nero, the emperor, had commanded that every few hours, one of his finest young men in the whole Roman Empire from the elite who constituted his bodyguard would be brought in and chained to the Apostle Paul to keep him company and to keep Paul from leaving. And Paul used that opportunity to instruct every one of them in the things of Christ. Paul would just talk to them. And uh, he would share Jesus with them. Isn't that amazing? And one by one, they were coming to know Christ. And there was formed a cadre of young men who came to know Christ and became his disciples. Have you ever noticed the last verse in Philippians, chapter 4, uh, verse 22, the second last verse? It says, And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. Wow, these no doubt are the young men that Paul has led to Christ. I love it. You see, joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. And in that, seeing how God is at work. Paul had a great ministry in, in, in Rome. In prison. Where's your prison? Do you feel like you are in prison? I mean, it can be anywhere. It can be very hard, the circumstances that we're under. But it's still effective. And joy is being on the edge of whatever happens. Paul knew that he had to live out what he wrote to the Romans several years before. You know, it's, it's much easier to write Romans 8.28, know that verse, when you're not in Rome. For he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When Paul wrote that, he wasn't in Rome. But now when he is in a Roman prison, does he still believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Christ? I love cake. 
chocolate cake. But I'm not one who likes the individual ingredients of cake. Do you? I don't like sit down and eat tablespoons of salt or sugar or frosting or vanilla flavoring. And I don't drink egg yolks. But when all of those things are mixed together and put into an oven, it comes out a cake. And I like it a lot. You see, God takes all of these individual things that may be somewhat distasteful in our life. And when he gets finished working, he has an ability to cause them to work together for good because you love God. Because you're called according to his purpose. Paul says, things are going to work out for my deliverance. I don't know how. I'm not sure if I'm going to stay with you or if I'm going to take a quick exit. But whatever happens is going to work out for my deliverance. Soren Kierkegaard, the uh, 19th century Danish theologian, is right when he says, Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. I like that. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. There are some things that happen in our life, in our ministries, in our families, in our lives, in which we do not see the hand of God. But if you live long enough and you get far enough back from it, sometimes you can see what God has allowed to transpire in your life. And you can see that God has done some things through all of those events. Well, Paul ha ha lived a whatever happens life, which is really to say he trusted Christ found joy in allowing the Holy Spirit to fill his life and experience his fullness. And, and he said to him, Lord, uh, to the Lord, whatever comes, Lord, I, I know you love me. I know you're with me. I know you'll see me through. So theme one is trusting God for whatever comes your way in chapter one. Chapter two, it shifts to the joy of downward mobility. The theme in chapter 2 is localized, I think, in the fifth verse. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And the issue in chapter 2 is the whole concern about disunity. Disunity was threatening the body of believers in Philippi. Yes, it was a great church. Paul loved the church in Philippi. But it was also a very human bunch of people who made up the church, just like every other church. You know, and, and division and, and heartache and relational challenges can happen in any church. And it has a devastating effect when there is disunity in the church. When people get irritated at one another, when people see things differently and there are cliques and divisions which are detrimental to the life and the vitality of, of a church. And that's why Paul writes chapter 2. He tells the Christians in Philippi, that if they want to experience the best of God, they'll need to intentionally be very careful to seek after unity. So he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he illustrates the with the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, who better to exemplify a servant heart than Jesus? 
we know the word upward mobility. We're not so keen on downward mobility. But you know, that's the term that looks us in the face every day of our lives. That's the word, downward mobility. Every day of our lives, we have to deal with that. Jesus emptied himself of all that he held of value in his life. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul says. He became a man. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. Talk about downward mobility. There was a story that came out in the Reader's Digest. I think I read it about a year ago. And it's the story of a, of a flight being canceled due to bad weather. It's not too hard for us to believe these stories. One solitary agent was trying to rebook all of the travelers whose schedules had been messed up. And one guy way back at the line, he, he became impatient and he rushed up to the front and he slammed his ticket on the counter and he said, I have to be on this flight and it must be first class. And the agent politely said to him, I'm sorry, sir, you can see there's a long line up here and I have to take care of the other people first, but I will get to you. The man became angry and he shouted, do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the agent picked up the loudspeaker microphone, said to the hundreds of people in the terminal, may I have your attention, please? We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. Oh, dear. The man backed off. A crowd of people burst into applause. And he sat in the back. You know, regardless of who that man was, whether he was rich or famous or a little bit of both, certainly didn't have the respect of the people at the terminal that day. It's hard to respect someone who considers themselves the most important person in the room and who puts their needs ahead of everyone else. Jesus existed before the world was created. How important is he? And yet he stepped downward, not thinking of himself, but of us. Joy is downward mobility. The joy of the Lord that says, I know who I am in Jesus. It's not important to have the limelight. It's not important to put somebody else down so that I get elevated. My joy comes in serving Christ and serving others and having the mind and attitude of, of Jesus. So the joy of trusting Christ, whatever happens, chapter 1. And the, the joy of downward mobility, chapter 2. Having the right attitude and living with humility. And then in chapter 3, joy is experiencing the life of Christ. Even suffering. Verses 10 and 11 are powerful. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. In verse 10, Paul is passionate about wanting to know Christ and wanting to experience his power. It's, he, it's the power of the resurrection. When Christ rose from the dead, there was a mighty power at work. And, and Paul says, that's the kind of power that I'd like to have in my life each and every day. 
amazing power to strengthen us, amazing power to walk through the challenging things of life. And even when we feel devastated and defeated, we know that there's a power in us that keeps us strong and stable amidst it all. And Paul says, I want to know Christ that way. Paul says, I, I used to think I had the credentials in, in and of myself. I was a Jew. I was circumcised. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a member of the Pharisees. I, I thought I had all these notches on my belt, and that's really what would get me through life. But it, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's garbage, Paul says, compared to knowing Christ. And he's willing to enter into suffering because he's a follower of Christ. And if that brings honor to Christ, well, then that's his heart and that's his prayer. At the end of chapter 1, if we could just go back, we have these words from Paul, chapter 1, verse 29. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Suffering. Suffering can have a powerful effect on other people. Paul, as you know, was thrown into prison in Philippi. He suffered. But there he was, Paul and Silas singing hymns in the dungeon. And instead of whining about what had happened, he was finding his joy in the midst of the suffering. And that impacted the jailer's heart. I, that's, what, that's the linkage I have. That impacted the jailer's heart. And he's watching Paul and Silas singing and praying and giving thanks under these tough circumstances. And then when that earthquake comes and then, then when he realizes that the prisoners might be free and uh, he comes to Paul and Paul says, no, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. And that jailer came to faith in Christ, I think, through watching Paul and Silas suffer with dignity. Last Sunday at the Super Bowl, some of those players were hurt. They were playing hurt. Bandaged ankles, arms, and yet they were playing. They're playing hurt. And what an inspiration that is. They're suffering, but they want to win so badly, they're out there. And Paul is reminding us to go the distance. We have a game to win. And I know many are playing hurt, but pressing forward. Our suffering is, in kind of a unique way, an opportunity for God to bless us. Kind of a unique way. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our well-being, and he shouts to us in our suffering. And I found that to be true in my own experience. When everything's going along beautifully, I can become somewhat immune, a little distant from the leadings of God and his desires for my life. Oh, but when I'm in trouble, I not only have God's attention, God is my attention. And I'm talking. Maybe for our generation, for the coming generation, we face a whole new world. It may include suffering. The Western church has been relatively free of that. It may change. What a landscape change these days. Egypt, Tunisia, possibly Iran, 
other countries that will follow in this revolution. Our society has been relatively free of a Great Depression for over 70, 80 years. Even the most major recession recently has been challenging for a lot of people, but not so much for the people of Canada. Others have suffered so much more. But praise God, whatever comes our way, that we have an anchor through all the stuff that we go through. I know there's always pain in any congregation. And more than you can imagine, I say multiply it by 10 and you're probably accurate. But with Paul, we look to Christ as our power and our strength in the midst of suffering so that others will see Christ in us. So finding joy in our sufferings, that's a tough one. And then chapter 4 is the joy of contentment. The key verses in chapter 4 are verses 11 and 12. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. It's a revolutionary truth. Contentment, the video, has nothing to do with your circumstances. I'm usually planning the next step in my life because I think if I get there, I'll be a little more secure, a little more fulfilled, a little more purposeful, and sometimes forgetting right now, right now, right now in this journey is the most important process. You may be thinking, well, once I get this job, well, then I'll be fine. Or once I get into a relationship with somebody I can trust, then I'll be okay. If I can just keep my house, then I'll be happy. That's all I want. All I want is this. If, if I could only have this. And if you have, if I could only have this one thing, the truth is, you're not going to find contentment. Contentment is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And that's the context of this passage. Paul is saying, look, I could be in prison. I could be feasting somewhere, but I've learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to many people. Man, how can you be content living in that situation? Your marriage might be going through a tough time. Your spouse has done something awful to you, and yet you say you found joy even in the midst of that? Christ is enough for you, and that's awesome? Then I say you get it. You get it. That's when you can tell if somebody really does get it. When things are difficult and they say, yeah, but I know, but in my heart, I have an amazing joy. I have an amazing peace. Or when they have a ton of stuff, that they can say, I own this, 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 this. I've got this, 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 and this. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Christ is everything to, to them. They get it. They get it. Have you learned this secret? 
that Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 4, the joy of contentment. Well, Philippians is a, is a great letter with theme as its joy. I'm glad we sang that song this morning. I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart to stay. 